Hey there, I'm Ryan. I've managed products at high growth companies like Weebly and Verb, and now I run my own startup, Sprig, an all-in-one research platform. In each episode of the People Driven Products podcast, our team talks with product managers, user researchers, and designers at some of the most successful customer-centric companies in the world to learn how they build products people want and love. Welcome, SK. Thanks so much for joining us today. Could you start us off by sharing what led you to Product Board and what it's like working there? Yeah. First of all, thank you, Ryan, for having me on your show. Excited to be part of it, um, you know, being uh, a fan of your company from a distance. So excited to get to know you a bit more and to be on your show uh, today as well. So in terms of me joining Product Board, I started at Product Board in February of this year. And I run our product management, product marketing and design teams. And, you know, I've been talking to Hubert for many months before actually starting at uh, Product Board. Hubert is our CEO. And the thing that resonated a lot for me is, you know, the vision that he painted is around Product Board becoming a system of record for product managers. You know, I think I, not to date myself, but, you know, I, I think I became a product manager in 1998, uh, so I've been a product manager for a while now. And so when when he explained the problems that it solves, it was easy to kind of wrap my head around the problem statement and why a tool like Product Board would be good for product managers to keep track of all the customer feedback, to be able to create, you know, roadmaps, to be able to use those roadmaps to align with the rest of the org, you know, and just kind of simplify the life of a product manager. So that was like, that was a no-brainer. But I think the thing that got us got me excited and, and Hubert about the, the vision and, and the broader impact that we could have is, you know, when you realize that PMs kind of sit at the center of a lot of different folks and they're kind of orchestrating how products get built. And so in a sense, they play uh, with a lot of other stakeholders within the, the company. Uh, so you're talking to engineering, you're talking to design, and you're talking to customer success. Uh, you're talking to salespeople all the time, you know, finance and customers all the time. And so a system of record for product managers is really a system of record for product. And when you look at it through that lens, the impact that a product like product board could have to product teams, even to customer facing teams, is really the, the opportunity and, and the challenge as well for us to deliver compelling experiences to all those folks who not only build products, but also have to market, sell, and support products as well. When I looked at, you know, through that lens, it felt like it was an opportunity to build something really big and compelling. Awesome. I love that system of record story and product board. I know so many companies use it today for tracking what to work on next, what's working with their product, how to prioritize. And I love the opinions of product board as well. It really comes baked in with some opinions on how you should really think around product management. And one of the main topics of the show has been creating customer centricity within product teams. Before we jump in, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how the product design and engineering team is structured at Product Board. So we um, we have um, a pretty big, pro- we call it EPD, engineering, PM, and design for us, it's a triad. And we have a lot of people in, in, in the EPD org. And so the way we are organized is around tribes. So we have four tribes focused on different aspects of our product. And each of the tribes have, you know, multiple teams underneath that are working on some aspect of that. 
And so at a tribe level, you know, the leads are, you know, three in a box in a sense. There's an engineering, you know, person responsible for the tribe. There's a PM person responsible. There's a design lead, you know, the three of them kind of run that tribe. And then when you look inside the tribe, there are teams and the teams are also run by triads, right? So there's a PM, there's an engineering manager or a tech lead, and then there's a designer kind of driving the, the team. That's the way we're organized. And we have leadership above that that kind of orchestrates everything, make sure that we're all working, you know, not making sure that we're not siloed in our, you know, our thinking and, and that we don't ship, you know, our tribe org structure to our customers. So we have some checks and balances in place to make sure that it's a coherent thing that we're shipping. Got it. And I love how you're just thinking around all three together equally. I know a lot of five, 10 years ago, maybe when you got into product management, you mentioned quite a while ago, you know, maybe some companies you saw were le- engineers were leading projects. I know Facebook yep. was known for that. Some yep. companies design was leading projects. So Airbnb was known for that. And other companies, product managers were really leading. And I think we've evolved this world of really realizing that the best products have that equal representation from design, engineering, and product. And when you think around all three of those together, do you focus on instilling customer centricity into just the product management role? Or is that something you think we're instilling across all three of those roles so that they can all have that customer centricity focused together? Yeah, it's it's really all three of us for us. I, I think, you know, one of the things that I just started, um, you know, trying to roll out at, at Product Board is, you know, having OKRs for our engineering folks around the number of customer interactions that they have or are required to have. And so the thing that we're piloting right now is depending on the level that you know, depending on your title, the expectation on the number of customer conversations that you need to be part of, you know, increases, right? So if you look at a tribe level, tribes are usually led by director level folks for us. And so in our, you know, uh, trial, we're saying uh, a director of engineering should participate on, I'd say, I think about nine customer calls a quarter. So three a month, you know, kind of a thing at a bare minimum. That's kind of the expectation. And then as you come down, Engineering managers are doing two calls a month, you know, six calls, customer calls a quarter. And if you're an IC, you're doing one a month, you know, so that's three. And so obviously those are like at the low end, right? We want them to participate more, but in a sense, you're not meeting your OKRs if you don't even do that, you know? And uh, in the past, when I've, you know, done that, it's really interesting when, when engineering folks sit on some of these customer calls and they, when they hear a customer complain about something, many times I've seen engineering folks go back to their desk and they just go freaking fix it, right? Like whatever the, compl- the customer complained about, they just do it, you know? And like, they know the code base, they know how long it's going to take. And some of these don't take a long time, but if you follow the process and all that stuff, we'll, we might never get to it. And so I've always believed that, you know, engineers have a lot of pride in what they're building. And when they hear something that customers are struggling with or whatever, like you get a lot more mileage when they hear it directly from the horse's mouth in a sense, you know? Uh, So I've always pushed for engineering folks to talk to customers. And then designers are obviously, you know, talking a lot with customers and for product managers, my rule with my product management team is I want them spending about 30% of their time talking to customers. And so my, my fear is that if they're not, you know, spending that kind of time talking to customers, you're just becoming too inward focused and starting to believe in stuff that, you know, people are saying, and you just kind of lose touch with what the market wants. 
And so that's kind of like the, you know, the metric that we use to make sure that, you know, we have a good pulse in terms of what the market needs from us. Yeah, that's great studying that those engineering goals. I know some companies in the very early days, they had engineers responding to support tickets. Yeah. And it reminds me in a way of what you're talking about, where in the early days, I've seen some companies where engineers are, you know, fixing the bug, saying, hey, it's fixed. <laughs> yep. And so I imagine on a call, someone sees something that's broken, they know it's not working, they can jump in the code, they can quickly fix it. Yep. And I'm sure too, that really gives that focus on the customer of why we're all here, why we're all building yeah. products, what this is about. You know, it's not really about the highest paid opinion in the room. It's really around serving someone who's using our product on a daily basis. And I think that's great to set the goals. And I think we all know as well, just the value of talking to customers, but it's something that I've seen slip probably too much and probably more than most of us like to admit. It's just like, how can you really set the goals around a percentage of time or maybe a number of customer calls. And I think for anyone listening, if you're looking to become more customer centric, I think it's a great example of setting an OKR of how many times do you talk to customers and being very specific about those goals, knowing that it's important, but something that often due to other priorities or other things that we have going on often slips. And we all know we can build better products though by talking to those customers. And so really love that example of how you're actually taking action there. And when you're hiring, is this something that you also look for? Do you look for those specific examples? Or have you found that perhaps setting those goals and really instilling that behavior when someone's at product board, maybe will suffice? Yeah, I mean, I don't get to interview too many engineering folks, um, at least at the ICD level, you know. So I, I don't know if that's part of our interview process. But either way, though, like ultimately, like the way I think about this is talking to customers and setting that expectation is a teachable thing, right? Like it's not like you're born, you know, being able to talk to customers or not kind of a thing, you know? So like I don't tend to worry about that so much in the interview process. I feel like that's something that we can teach. But certainly I look for when people are giving me examples, the telltale sign for me is, are they talking to me about stuff that they've solved from a customer perspective or an internal perspective? That gives me a bit of an insight in terms of how they think. Or worst case is, what kind of an organization they're part of and how did that organization you know, think, right? Because a lot of folks tend to kind of fit into how an organization uh, works as well. And so that gives me a bit of insight in terms of like, you know, what, what am I getting my hands into, you know, kind of a thing. But certainly once they come in, it's pretty clear, you know, what the expectations are and we try to hold people accountable to that. Got it. Interesting. And when we talk about customer centricity, I know you have some perspectives as I did my research between users and buyers. Yeah. And so we talk about customer centricity, help me understand just the differences between the two and maybe some past experiences you have or how that relates to product board. Sure. So look, for me, most of my experience has been in B2B. And I don't think I've ever worked in a B2C company, so I don't have much of a context there. But at least in, in B2B, what often happens is the buyer is not necessarily the user of your system, right? And so you could actually, depending on what you're, who you're listening to and what you're optimizing for, you might actually you know, build something that may not fit one or the other. And oftentimes, what B2B companies tend to do, and startups like us, we're taught by our VCs, like, man, focus on who the buyer is. Like, make sure you solve the buyer's problem. You know, like, that's kind of like startup 101, right? And so 
by definition, we focus on what the buyer wants, right? And we're like really nailing that use case. And one of the implications of that is oftentimes they're not actually the users of our system, right? So like, I'll give you a very specific example from my own past. So before uh, joining Product Board, I worked at a company called CultureAmp. And I got into CultureAmp because they had acquired my company um, that was in the performance review space. And performance reviews are a classic you know, example. Our buyer is HR, right? And so they're the ones who are going to cut us the check. And they have a list of expectations in terms of what a good product management system needs to do, right? And they're thinking about it mostly from their perspective. There are a few visionary you know, HR folks who actually even think about what the employees want. But putting that aside. So like you could totally optimize for what the HR folks want. And then the employees who actually have to use the system, they're like, man, this thing is like, doesn't fit with what I want, you know? And so like performance review software, when you, when you do look at the NPS for that very broadly, most people hate performance reviews. And oftentimes the tool gets blamed for it. But it's not really the tool that's the problem. It's the process and how HR is enforcing that process is the problem. That's what they're reacting to. And they're taking it out on the tool that enforces the process that's being you know, put in front of them. You know, The tool is almost like a manifestation of the process. And so there, what the users want and what HR wants are not quite aligned, right? And so it, it creates a, you know, a different product you know, if you're not careful, if you over-optimize for one versus the other. Uh, so I've seen that happen. And we kind of learned the learned the hard way where we actually, in the initial stages of my company, we focused more on what the users want. And we got to a stage where the users, you know, would love us, but HR, like, were like, hey, you got to turn this thing off. We actually had like a, you know, freemium model uh, that was focused on getting to the employees first and the employees would like totally love it. And they would just start like spreading within an org. And, you know, once there was about 30 to 40 people who were using a product, HR would get wind of, you know, their employees using us and they'd call us and say, hey, what are you guys? What, what are you doing? You know, and we would explain what we're doing and they're like, oh, that's great. Like, but we want to run this initiative. Can you shut everything down? You know, and they would want to kind of drive the discussion going forward. And so we ended up having to like change and add a lot of you know new features to the product just to get HR to buy the product. So in a sense, you know, we kind of learned the hard way that, you know, we got to still know who the buyer is and who's going to pay and make sure that you meet your needs. But at the same time, not forget who the ultimate user of your system is going to be and make sure that you're delighting them as well. Got it. Interesting lessons there. And so for those that are building B2B products, how do you recommend really balancing those two? And I imagine maybe the initial sale, it's more important for the buyer, but on the renewal, it might be more user-driven saying, hey, this is working for me. This is not working for me. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the danger of not focusing on the buyer is that nobody's going to buy you, you know? So like in a sense, I think of like meeting the needs of the buyer is kind of like the entry fee, you know, like it's the cover charge to get into the bar kind of a thing, you know? So you got to like meet their needs. Otherwise it's, it's not, it's your life is going to be that much harder. But as you said, ultimately, you know, HR folks or whomever your buyer is going to look and say, Hey, are people actually using this stuff? And so that's where you got to like really think about like, hey, what's the user engagement look like? What's the user feedback? You know, are we listening to them enough versus listening to the buyer, right? Because they might actually take you in different directions. So trying to balance that out um, is, is massively important. You can't, you can't forget the users because they will eventually not use your product if it's too hard. 
And I think that's that's what ends up happening with you know traditional B two B software gets a bad you know rap because of that, right? Because we focus so much on what the buyers want, and at the expense of what the end users who actually use the system and what they want and what delights them. And so I think B two B software has a has a bit of catching up to do in terms of you know focusing more on delighting the actual end users of the system. Yeah, and when you mentioned that of. Enterprise software, I immediately thought of Salesforce, where those end users, certainly I've heard plenty of frustration from them, yeah. but the advanced permissions and models and, you know, data objects for an admin, you know, or maybe a sales leader, it has all the bells and whistles. It can integrate with any other system out there right. and you have full control and permissions. But I remember we actually attempted using Salesforce here at UserLeap and there was no mobile application. And so a lot of our you know reps were wondering, hey, I need to be able to update records and really do things on the go. So we ended up switching to HubSpot, yeah. where I found much more of a user-focused product management model. We're very focused yeah. on those end users, but I know that our head of sales, Sonia, doesn't quite have all the roles and permissions, and you know, so it's very interesting to just see the different yeah. evolutions here of different companies, and you know yeah. how they're taking different approaches. And I think those are two perhaps polar opposites of just how they think about building products and one focusing on the buyer, one, you know, focusing on the user. Like, I think the balance is somewhere in between, right? You can't do one or the other, right? Like you've got to balance it. It's a bit of a balancing act. And I think in just very, very broadly speaking, I think enterprise, you know, B2B companies tend to focus more on the buyer than on the user. If you were to just, you know, kind of put it on a scale, certainly focusing on the buyer kind of far outweighs the focus that we put on the users. And I think we're both in our own way making the case for, you know, our listeners and other companies to actually start focusing a bit more on the users as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's great though at um, Zugata how you did have that user focus because I'm sure now it's really paying off knowing that a lot of companies are bottoms up and they're really you know, selling to the user. That's where, where the adoption's starting. But in many cases, we haven't quite made that shift yet depending on the industry. I'm curious, you know, for the audience here wondering about how to maybe you better understand buyers and users. Do you find that different research techniques or different techniques to talk to customers? You know, maybe one technique works better for buyers and another works better for users? Yeah, it, it's um, it's interesting. I think, you know, in B2B, depending on the software, like you just won't have enough data to do A-B testing. Like you don't, you know, you don't get enough usage on a day-to-day -day basis to do decent enough A-B testing, you know, like that consumer guys tend to do. So the probably the most common things that, you know, B2B PMs tend to do is to just do customer interviews, right? You go talk to the buyer. Like a lot of the conversations are with the buyers and not enough with the users, right? Like the, in a sense, like from my previous job, oftentimes the HR folks would be the gatekeepers. They wouldn't even let us talk to the actual end users, you know? They just, like would not let us go directly. We had to go around them to talk to the to actual users of the system, which was a bit frustrating. But I think that's where companies like yourself, I mean, the, the work that you guys are doing is an awesome way to kind of like, you know, get real feedback from the actual users of the system and, and collect data that way. But I think just in general, like at least with the buyers, you do interviews and the, those tend to be much easier and, and getting to the actual end users of the system, depending on, the space that you're in, it, it's a little bit harder to get to the users directly. And it's also not scalable, right? Like there's only so many buyers. It's it's much more scalable to go talk to like 
you know, 10, 20, you know, buyers and, and for users, you might want to get a, a broader cross section. So anything that we can do to automate and collect data at scale is probably more useful when you're trying to deal with end users. Absolutely. And, you know, usually I started, I uh, really got the idea for usually when I was at Weebly yep. and, you know, Weebly, it was B to SMB where the buyer and the user were the same. Okay. And we're talking about a, user, a yoga studio, you know, yoga yeah. studio, she, uh, maybe the owner wanted to build her website. And, you know, so when it's the same, uh, with the large number of users, that's where that one to many survey technique is much more yeah. powerful. But for the listeners here, um, what I'm hearing is that those one-on-one -on -one customer interviews go much deeper, really hear from buyers, the pains, what's working, what's not working. And then for the users, you know, user leap or another other system around that really that one-to-many communication. You want a larger crosscut. You want to hear what more folks are thinking. You want to really measure and automate that, knowing that there's thousands, tens of thousands and millions of those users out there of different ways to really understand what's working and not working and digging into product board specifically. So, you know, in our research, you mentioned around really reorienting around the customers and segmenting customers into really where they're at, you know, in their journey. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you think about that. Cause that's something that I think is very unique and really interesting. Yeah. It's um, so I think just one small clarification that, we're having to talk a bit about internally is, you know, we, our entire thing is like, Hey, we're a customer centric product management system, you know? And so uh, what a lot of people assume when you say customer centric is like you're paying customers right now, very your customers, you know? And so the thing that I keep talking about, you know, with my team is like, look, we have whatever 4,500, you know, companies that use us, you know, that's the customer base in a sense. And nothing wrong with listening to them. We should listen to them. We should improve the product based on what they're saying. But I don't want us to forget the rest of the market, right? Like there's probably like, we should be thinking about how we're going to get to 45,000 companies using our software, right? And so a lot of, you know, under our customer-centric umbrella, you know, the, the segments underneath are existing customers who are paying for us right now, prospects and the broader market who's actually not using us now. And also even looking at churn customers and what feedback they've given us, that becomes a really important input for our strategy as well. And so we constantly keep reminding ourselves that it's not just the existing customers. When we say customers, it's really the market. And the market is comprised of people who already bought you, people who could potentially buy you, people who have already tried you and said, you're shit and moved on, you know, because they've given you some feedback. They've spoken, you know, ultimately they've spoken with their wallet, Right. And that has some meaning and, and context and interesting insights there as well. Yeah. I think that's interesting because when we hear a lot of companies and we start working with them, they say that, hey, we have 4,500 customers and we're hearing from maybe 50 of them right now. Mm -hmm. And so that we, we want to talk to all 4,500. Sure. And so it usually a lot of the work that we're doing is around expanding that aperture to hearing from the ones that, you know, have your cell phone number and they're texting you every day about the next feature that you should work on. At Weebly, I had folks find me on Facebook and text me and you know add me and send me messages. It was a very small percentage of people that you always hear about. Really, the you know the folks that are very active the loud ones. and the yeah. yes, the, yeah. the loud ones, the passionate ones. Yeah. So a lot of folks come to us that usually depends. Hey, we're t we're hearing from you know fifty. We want to hear from all forty five hundred. Let's say yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think what is powerful about what you're talking about is actually expanding that further 
is around saying, hey, we want to not only talk to 4,500, but it, maybe there's 45,000 in our overall market. And you know, maybe we had a few hundred of those who previously used product board and they no longer use product board for various reasons. But we also have the other side of the market who could use product board. And so let's actually think around customer centricity around all three of those segments of not only the current, but also the future and the past. And I think that when you you think around customer centricity, that's probably when I define like perfect customer centricity and really understanding the customer, it is future, current and past because ideally you want to capture 100% of the market. I think it's rare for us to say, hey, I only want a couple percent of the market. You know, I mean, yeah. you get that couple percent and you're, you know, you say you're done. Do you go on vacation? No, you keep going. You want to yeah, yeah, keep absolutely. building. Yeah. And so I love that idea. And how has that really changed how your team thinks about building products, knowing that there's actually a much larger set of companies that you're now factoring in into your own decision making? Yeah. A couple of things just at a very tactical level, right? I mentioned that, you know, I try to have the PM spend about 30% of their time talking to customers. And when I say customers, it's not existing customers, right? So that's the immediate shift that we've made is to say, hey, don't spend all 30% of your time talking to existing customers. Go jump on a sales call, right? Like that our sales team is doing with the prospect to like see what kind of objections come up, right? Who else they're looking at? Like what are their needs? And oftentimes, you know, I see prospects asking like, hey, how can we do this in your product? You know, and that's kind of like, if you don't do that, that's almost like a little, you know, signal for you. I'm like, huh, they're trying to do that. That's the problem statement that I may have heard or may not have heard about. So it gives you a little bit of insight in terms of directionally, what, how could you extend your product to get a bigger pie, you know, in a sense. So we try to like get people to have a cross section of these, you know, calls, not just with existing customers. That's one. And two, from a prioritization standpoint, one of the things that we're trialing in, in our company is if you look at how we invest our engineering resources, our product resources, you know, we, we're trying out this 30-30-30 rule that we you know, are talking about internally. And that is that at any, any given point in time, 30% of our investment in terms of being a product resources, EPD resources, should really be focused on growth and building stuff for tomorrow, right? So that is to go from 4,500 customers to like 10,000 customers, right? Stuff that's going to help us expand the number of customers that we get has to be a focus for us. And we invest about a third of our resources doing that. And a third of our resources are focused on what our existing customers want, Right? They bought the product, they're using it, they, they need more, whatever, you're going to keep them happy, make sure that they don't churn. And then a 30% of our resources are towards debt. Right, That could be technical debt, that could be design debt. And lately, we've been talking a lot about culture debt as well, especially given the remote working and COVID and all that. A lot of us haven't met with each other. Right, There's not any strong relationships, nothing to fall back on. And so how do we invest in our people and the processes and just building those relationships? That's really important. And so that's the way we're thinking about it. So in a sense, we're kind of forcing ourselves to not just, like I think the biggest mistakes that PMs make is focus just on the existing customers. Because like when you have 4,500 customers, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that much, but still it's a lot. And if you just listen to them, 
they will keep your roadmap buzzing for like years to come, right? You could just keep on feeding them, right? But in the short run, that feels good. But in the long run, it may not actually like help you, you know, grow and become madly successful, you know? And so in a sense, you know, to prevent us from making that mistake, we're kind of forcing like, hey, what part of our investment is going towards stuff that our customers are not asking for, but stuff that we believe will help us grow and being able to set aside some resources to always be working on it is really important. And so that's the way we're kind of driving, you know, change in the organization. Yeah, I think that's certainly a unique view on prioritization. And I, I think the... Emphasis on debt's really important as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know eBay was a two-year rewrite for the infrastructure. So how can you really stay nimble? How can you stay agile as an organization? I know Uber just got through a multi-year rewrite of their system and they launched a new version and no one knew anything changed. But some companies, they can incur so much debt that it you really lose that ability to ship new features. New competitors emerge, market changes, you can't really you know work with it. Yep. And so what I'm hearing from you is that you're able to really invest in the future of what you want to do and really have that optionality and flexibility by really instilling and kind of preventing that debt across design, tech, and culture, which I think is really powerful. And one thing that we've been kind of inflicting, you know, a conflict internally that we've had that, that reminds me of what you're talking about is that we have you know a great set of customers now and one of them asks for a feature A or a bug fix B or you know maybe a quick fix C and our team internally is saying, hey, these are really quick fixes to please these customers, but we're also not really quite hitting our onboarding goals as a company for the quarter, for those ambitious goals that we've set. And you really have to push yourself as a product manager and a product team. Let's focus on those future customers who are maybe looking at our product, but something's not quite working for them. And they're not the ones that are gonna be slacking you or really telling you you know, what's working or not working. But if you don't focus on really appealing to the future customers, then you're missing out on a whole customer segment and you often don't even know how big that segment could be. And so you know, maybe there's a cohort of 5,000 companies in that 45,000 cohort that are coming to sales and finding out that, hey, this integration or a feature isn't there. And you know, maybe there's an internal distraction about existing customers. And so I think that's really powerful to just think around the prioritization. I think as product managers, the past and the future is what gets often deprioritized or doesn't get the focus that it really deserves. Yep. Where the existing customers, particularly the loudest ones, are the ones that are you know, internally, everyone really wants to please them and make sure they're well taken care of, but they're not going to help you hit your growth goals. It's really going to be the other segments. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's tough though, right? I mean, like you have your head of CS, you know, breathing down your neck saying, oh, that big customer is going to churn if you don't do this, that I like. It's just like, you constantly keep hearing this, right? And it's so easy to get sucked into that and react to that and keep, you know, chipping away at that. And then like two years later, you figure out like, man, somebody else, you know, didn't have this baggage of listening to all these existing customers and build something truly innovative and just kind of leapfrog you, you know, and you had, you know, these 5,000 customers today and they're all going to be gone because you haven't innovated. They're going to find something that looks and does something, you know, 10x better. And you're like, well, I could have done that, but you don't get credit for thinking, you know, like you should have done it then, you know. And so I think that's that's the that's the thing that worries me the most, right? As as PMs is 
Like, how do we make sure that we're always thinking about tomorrow and being disciplined about investing for tomorrow? Because tomorrow is not guaranteed, you know, like you, you got to work for it. And it's so easy to focus on the present and existing customers and, and the debt, you know? And so in a sense, it's, it's the realization that, you know, you can't just focus on any one of those three for too long. You know, like the flip of that is you over-focus on tomorrow and you're constantly building new features, but your existing customers are actually not staying on your platform. You have a leaky bucket, then that's a problem as well. So that's not ideal either, you know? And oftentimes a lot of young PMs worry about like, which one do you want me to do? Can you like do this or that? Like you can't quite do this or that, you know? It's like, it has to be in terms of like, hey, how much investment dollars do we put here versus there? versus like, do we work just on this or that, you know? Yeah. And tactically for folks listening, do you have any recommendations on how they can implement this? Is this maybe around an OKR structure where you're, or maybe you're keeping track of the invested resources and making sure that it's representative of these areas? Yeah. So like a very bare bones, like hacky thing that I used to do is in most of the companies that, you know, and product orgs that I've been part of, you know, you tend to do quarterly product reviews, you know, or some half year reviews or whatever, where, you know, different product teams are talking about like, hey, what are the things that they're going to build on or build for the next you know quarter or six months? And one of the things that I always do in my little notebook is I actually jot down what they're talking about. And I try to like color code it and say, hey, is this a differentiator or is this a neutralizer or is this a retainer, you know, kind of thing. Or like, is this for growth or is this for existing customers? Is this debt? Some kind of, you know, way to like categorize what we're going to build. And then at the end of the day, when all the teams have presented, I kind of tallied up and like, you know, I've actually done instances where I've actually put that in a spreadsheet and showed people at the end of the meeting and said, okay, well, let's look at it quickly. And pictures are worth a thousand words, right? Like you can quickly see, if, especially if you color code, where is most of our investment? Where's our focus? Where's our head at? You know, you can actually quickly see that. And oftentimes what you see is a lot of investment on existing customers, a little bit on debt and very, very little on like new stuff. And so that's a good way for us to like say, whoa, this is like not cool. Like how do we fix that? Right. It's a good way for us to like quickly check. And then you could argue that one quarter doing that, you know, is fine. But like, I tend to freak out a lot if I go two quarters back to back where I'm not seeing new stuff, you know? And so the way we talk about it internally is we have four tribes. And so my expectation is every tribe should have one press release worthy big ticket item that they ship. And if you look at four tribes, four quarters, once a year, I want you to ship one thing big. That's the only thing that I'm asking. And if we sequence them right, every quarter, we should be doing a press release with something big, one from each you know, tribe. Does that make sense? Like one from each of the tribes. So four quarters, we get four press releases out. That's why I think about it. And if I'm not seeing that, like I share that feedback and we try to figure out like, hey, what are we missing? You know, Do we actually need to do all these things for our existing customers? You know, Because oftentimes some of these things that you do are not really to save customers. And it's not like they're going to churn if you didn't do them, you know? So it's like, how desperately do we need to do them, you know? And are we kind of mortgaging the future? And so it's, it's a quick way to like check and make sure that you're, you know, investing correctly. Just color code, you know, that's the easiest thing in a spreadsheet, you know, and be able to share that with your team. 
great tactical recommendation, color coding what you're working on, where you're spending your time, looking at this on a quarter by quarter basis. So an audit at the end of the quarter and looking at where those colors are, yep. you know, are you really hitting those goals and avoiding two quarters in a row? Super helpful. Definitely one that we'll be implementing here at user leap and making sure that every quarter we're really balancing our resources appropriately. And with the time that we have left, I know that, you know, as it's great that we have someone of your experience here on the show, because a lot of the product managers that I I talk to say that they want to better understand how to get that buy-in internally. And as a product leader yourself, what recommendations do you have for product managers who are really looking to sell or get that buy-in from executive leadership or maybe an idea that she has or maybe a new finding, but it requires resources that maybe aren't currently allocated for? Yeah. And I think this is where the context of the business matters a lot. So we we talk a lot about GRR and NRR, right? It's retention and growth in your existing base, right? And so one of the things that you know I talked to the team about is if your retention is really bad, right? Like you, you know, you got to fix that. If if you're not able to keep your customers and there's something, it's a leaky bucket, right? So it doesn't make sense for you to go build more, you know, stuff on top of that bucket when your bucket itself is leaking. It does make sense, right? You've got to fix the leaky bucket. But once your retention is like above 80, 85%, whatever, right? Like to get an incremental percent or 2% retention is hard. It's almost like not worth it, you know? And so one of the things that we talk about it is look, if your if your retention is good enough or you know, or great, don't keep pushing for it. Like that's when you need to invest in growth, right? Your your existing customers are happy, they're not going to leave you, right? And so that's when you want to start building for growth. And so I try to provide a lot of that kind of context for our PMs to say, hey, this is where we are as a business, right? And so if you're in a stage where you have a massively leaky bucket. And you come up with a brand new idea to build something new, like the execs are going to be like, dude, contextually, this doesn't make sense. I've got a freaking big problem here. And you're trying to sell me on something that doesn't quite fit, you know? So I think as PMs, the key thing is to understand the business context in which you're operating and knowing when to push for something, you know, when, and, and so I think that's probably the number one thing is the business context is so critical, Right. When things are going, you know, well, when your customers are happy, that's when you want to like double down and think about like, hey, I have some new ideas to drive growth, right? And and obviously when you pitch, it's really about like, hey, what is obviously the customer value that you're going to deliver, right? And why is this important for the business at this point in time? It's almost like, you know, the VC pitches that we have to do, right? It's like, why now, right? And what's unique about us, why that? So almost think of like presenting to the execs is almost as if you're pitching a startup idea, you know, to VCs. Uh, and really talk about the problem statement, why this is important for the business, why now, you know, what's unique about the position that we're in such that we can actually make a difference to the business by implementing this is what I, that's how I set the context for my PMs. Yes. Yeah, that's absolutely, it's really thinking in the context of the OKRs Yeah. and, you know, out, OKRs, uh, great OKR, highly outcome driven, you know, we want to hit this goal, you know, maybe onboarding this goal, maybe churn. This goal, maybe, you know, this metric or users think this perception, maybe product market fit. And then it's really laying everything on the table. You know, let's let's get all the ideas from all corners of the room and from, you know, the entire company, really sift through everything. And I think, you know, 
I'll say that's an ideal org yeah. and a lot, a lot of companies I've worked at, they don't have outcome driven OKRs and outcome driven roadmaps and, you know, it can feel very top down. And that's usually where I see some frustration from product managers where we don't have this outcome driven process or we don't have these clear goals or maybe a product leader, you know, like yourself isn't clearly communicating the growth or the retention story so they can really understand how those features might fit into that context. And they might just get a no or not right now, or that isn't a focus. And so I, I certainly feel for the product managers who maybe don't have that clear framework where everyone can contribute to, um, and the executives you know, like yourself are really setting the clear framework, which is just really helpful. And so it sounds like really understanding the context and why now, um, very similar to you know investor pitch, and making sure that you're reading the room, right? <laughs> the executive is saying, "Hey, we have a churn issue," and you're, you know, pitching an onboarding functionality or, or new feature or a new integration that's nothing related to, you know, that retention. It's not going to be received well. So, yeah, great advice uh, tactically. Just really understanding the business, understanding the goals annually, understanding the goals quarterly, and then anything else to add to that. So make sure I capture everything before we move on to the next question. No, man, that, that's it. And I think, you know, oftentimes what I also encourage the PMs to do is like get some customer quotes, go do a little bit of research. Don't just come with like your hairbrain idea and just pitch directly to exact, right? Do a little bit of discovery, like validate the idea a little bit, get some customer quotes, you know, in your pitch that actually carries a bit of weight as well. And then the other thing that I recommend to them is like, hey, pitch the execs if you can, even before the actual meeting, right? Try to like figure out who's bought into it, you know, don't, don't walk in blind. That's always a bit hard. And so try to, try to get a couple of people on your side, you know, who can provide a little bit of air cover, you know, before you actually even go in. And, and maybe that's for slightly bigger companies, but there's a fair bit of, you know, how do you work? The org is, is an important skill for PMs to develop. Yes, certainly those relationships, making sure it's going to land well. You're going to yeah. have someone backing you up in the room <laughs> when you're yeah. presenting those ideas. Yeah, yeah. And when you're really helping your team make great product decisions, is there any recommendations or if you maybe see someone with a decision that you don't agree with, I'm curious how you would approach that situation. And I think for all the product managers listening, it'd be helpful to hear from a product leader like yourself, just different maybe ways you've been able to course correct folks that are perhaps off track. Yeah, it's that it's an interesting one, right? Like I think I, I tend, assuming you hire good people, the problem often is not what they have come up with. Oftentimes, when you double-click on some of these things, what you realize is the way they frame the problem is incorrect, right? And I think whenever I run into any issues where something is not, you know, working out properly or you know whatever, I always like try to back up the truck and say, "Hey, what what exactly is the problem? What are we trying to solve?" Let's develop a shared understanding of what it is that the problem. If we can understand the problem correctly, if we're both using the same lens through which to look at the problem, then I'm relatively confident, given good people, that they'll come up with the right solution, probably better than I could, you know? So I try to focus more on like, hey, are we asking the right questions? Are we actually like focused on the right problem? Are we defining the problem correctly? And I feel like that is the job of the leadership is to set that kind of context and define what the problems are and what, what is the real problem. 
And without that, that's when things go sideways, right? Because, you know, it's not like your PMs are trying to screw the business. It's just that they looked at us, you know, a problem slightly differently than the way you've looked at it, you know? So for me, it's it's just making sure that we have a common understanding of the problem is is really, really crucial. And oftentimes I find, you know, things going sideways because that alignment is not established. Got it. Right. And an example, like we talked about was, you know, if I have a leaky bucket and you're coming up with growth, you know, you, you know, that that's kind of like, dude, like, what are you doing? You know, things like that, you know, you just need to make sure that there's context and, and knowing what the problems are and looking at the problems the same way. Yeah. Making sure we're facing the right direction. And I've seen some really heated arguments and it is often what does the customer want? What's the problem? What's the metric we're trying to solve? And usually, you're, to your point, those things start to sort themselves out, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. someone maybe, maybe changes, you know, someone else's mind. Sometimes I've seen my my perspective changed, yeah. but you, you usually end up being aligned uh, when you really look at let's let's link this up from you know the top all the way down the different layers. Unpack. Yep. Do we agree on those? Okay, now let's look at this decision. Hey, it looks like we're actually facing the same direction. Yeah. And oftentimes that kind of disarms people as well. Right. If, if you don't kind of back up the truck, people tend to like dig into the decisions that they've already made. And it's hard to like get people to like let go of that, you know, and it just gets into like a pissing contest that like it just it's it's hard, you know. And so for me, every time that's happening, I always like remind myself, oh, back up, back up, back up here. Let's get back one step. Let's left shift a little bit and get to like, hey, let's talk about what it is that we're trying to do. What's the problem that we're trying to solve and kind of get people to agree on that first. Yeah. So there's like I've, I've gone through that multiple times and it, it gets pretty frustrating if people are not aligned in what it is that we're trying to do. Yeah. That North Star. Let's all have the same direction. Yep. Got time for one more question. Wrapping up here. What's your top piece of advice for product managers who want to create products people love? Wow. Be passionate about it, man. Like, I mean, don't, it's, it's so, taking a step back. Product management is probably the hardest freaking job you can do in tech, right? It's probably the most ill-defined role. It's hard. Oftentimes, you know, the buck stops with you. You get blamed for a bunch of stuff. You don't, nobody works for you. Nobody needs to listen to you, right? People talk about like, hey, PMs are CEOs. You know, I've been in both. Like as a CEO, people just listen to you. Like whether you like it or not, like people will like listen to you more than you actually want them to listen to you. You know, I'm sure you you hear, you kind of know that as well, right? So you just, you get a whole bunch of power just because of the title. And as a PM, you actually don't, don't get that. Nobody gives a shit about, you know, nobody's going to just do what you want them to do. So it's a different role. So First and foremost, be like, understand what you're getting into and know that it's a really hard job. Prioritization is hard. Everything about product management is hard, right? But the thrill of shipping something that is used by millions of people, man, like that's the biggest high you can get. Like there's something so rewarding to have like come up with the idea for something and work with the engineering team to convince them and to build it you ship it and it just lands really well and people love it. That thrill is just unbelievable, right? And so I think my my guidance to folks who want to get into PM, you know, or early in the career is like, know that it's going to be hard. Know that you're passionate about wanting to like solve tough problems 
If that doesn't motivate you, then being a PM is absolute hell. Don't do it. Go be a PMM instead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Perhaps more of a supporting role that yeah. is not going to take the heat if something's not going well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not that PMM is, is easy by any chance, by any means, but you know what I mean. Yes. Yeah. Really great advice there. Thank you so much for joining the show today. Some very tactical, very really great advice for product managers that are listening. And if you're looking for a roadmap solution, productboard.com, you can see what SK and the team have been up to and the fantastic product that they've created. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me on the show, bud. Enjoyed chatting with you. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Driven Products. If you'd like to request a guest for a future episode, go ahead and email marketing at sprig.com. If you want a platform that can help you make customer-informed product decisions in real time, be sure to check out sprig.com. Let's face it, most product managers and designers don't conduct user research as much as they would like to because the process of pulling lists, sending email surveys, and finding interview participants is slow and time-consuming. And at larger companies with in-house user research teams, researchers are often rushed through projects to meet aggressive deadlines or product teams forego research from the research team because there's not enough time for it. That's why I started Sprig to help product and research teams learn from their customers at the speed of modern product development with asynchronous video interviews, concept testing, and microsurveys. Sprig is used by over 600 startups, hyper-growth companies, and enterprise product teams like Dropbox, Adobe, Loom, and Square. Try it free or learn more at sprig.com.